welcome to Wisconsin DNR's Wild Wisconsin Off the Record Podcast. Information straight from the source. episode of the Wisconsin DNR Wild Wisconsin off the record podcast so as a reminder this gives us an opportunity to go kind of more in depth in a lot of the topics we cover whether on social media pages news releases things like that so uh, we like to sit down with staff who, who are very close to a lot of these topics and kind of get their thoughts uh, also personal experiences where that makes sense too so today we are going to be talking about sturgeon in Wisconsin um, also talking about the sturgeon spearing season, which is actually going on right now. Uh, we're up in Oshkosh. So today, I'm Sawyer Briel. I'm with the Fish, Wildlife, and Parks Division here at DNR. We've also got Ryan Koenigs, a DNR sturgeon biologist. Aaron O'Connell, a fisheries technician with DNR. Uh, Nolan Pickar, who's a friend of ours, a big outdoorsman. And he is new to the whole sturgeon thing, so we thought we'd bring him along. Maybe get his perspective on some of this stuff. And then we also have Eric Barber, our social media coordinator. So before we get started, um, I was hoping you guys could just talk a little bit about your background. So Ryan, we'll start with you. Uh, how did you get started in your career? Actually, we'll, we'll rewind a little bit more. So what, what is your position at DNR? I'm a senior fisheries biologist with the fisheries program. And specifically, I spend most of my time working with our lake sturgeon uh, management program and spear fishery here on the Winnebago system. So how did, how did you get started, kind of what, at what point was your interest peaked with, with sturgeon in particular? Well, I think I can go back further than that. Um, like most fisheries managers or, or sportsmen, I really became interested in fishing through a family member. It was my grandfather, and ironically, I actually grew up cane pole fishing for bullheads. And, uh, but the love for fishing came very early on in my life, and uh, my parents have a place up north and we would go sturgeon fishing hook and line on the Menominee River as well so I some seasons the season used to go two months we'd catch over 100 sturgeon a year so pretty early on you know a lot of those were smaller fish yep. ranging from 20 to probably 55 inches but I had an appreciation for sturgeon very very early on in my life I grew up in Chilton Wisconsin so on the east shore of Lake Winnebago so I'm very familiar with the spear fishery and the population here so to have the job that I have now is really, I consider it my dream job. You know, I'm close to where I grew up. My wife's family's from the area as well. And I have a personal interest in this fishery and population as well as the professional interest. Oh, you're making this really easy. So I guess the next question we had is why do you enjoy what you do? I guess we kind of touched on that, but uh, can you maybe walk us through what a day in the life looks like for you, maybe in sturgeon spearing season and outside? Well, every day is different. Um, this time of the year with the spear fishery, uh, my job more so is to oversee everything that's going on. So schedule all the folks, the staff from around the state working at our registration stations. Uh, we do have 10 registrations that are open throughout the season. So it's a lot of staff time and a lot of effort that goes into planning things. Uh, we also collect a tremendous amount of data from all of the harvested fish. It's mandatory registration. So we get length, weight, sex, maturity, 
uh, reproductive stage, tagging data, all kinds of information from the fish that are harvested. And then I also try to handle a lot of the, the media, the, the press that's related to this. I think two years ago I did over 50 media interviews around sturgeon spearing time. So there's a lot of public interest. And I also you know, get in the daily harvest numbers, uh, send out the reports, that type of information. Outside of sturgeon spearing, you know, I do a fair amount of field work in the springtime when fish are spawning. Um, but throughout a lot of the year, I spend a lot of time in the office doing administrative stuff, writing reports, um, analyzing data, and then I do a tremendous amount of public outreach. That's probably one of the biggest aspects of my job, and it's probably the thing that I enjoy the most is just working with the dedicated spears and, and sportsmen that we have around here and the stakeholder groups that are very engaged in our management program. So you're a local. How, how beneficial do you think it is um, working here now, working with the people? Do you think on a daily basis it's beneficial that you're from the area and you know the resource so well? Yeah, no doubt. Um, I started as an LT fisheries technician in 2008, and I was a technician for about four years before I promoted to being a sturgeon biologist. And I, I talked to a lot of people at banquets and meetings, and, and that was important to them that I was someone from around the area. And, and I'm, I am a lot, I purchase a sturgeon spearing license every year, so to them I, I can relate a lot more because I have that personal interest as well. I think it's it's given me a lot of credibility. Oh, yeah. I mean, I would say, too, just, you know, this area, see, I mean, it's got to be the sturgeon capital of the state. And, you know, you, I'm from about an hour and a half south of here and where, you know, you don't really even hear much about sturgeon spearing. Same thing with, like, the western part of the state, you know, but you get in this little hub and it's just, I mean, I was out this past weekend and it seems like it's, you know, more of a uh, to-do than deer season, so... Yeah, I think uh, I'll go a step further. I think we're probably the sturgeon capital of North America, if not the world. Yeah. I mean, um, I've been to enough national and international meetings, and people are really jealous of what we have here on the Winnebago system. There are other places that may have more fish by numbers than what we have, but they don't have their much larger systems, much larger water bodies. They don't have the density of fish that we have here. Um, we have, with the spear fishery, the largest recreational harvest of lake sturgeon that there is. So... Um, there's, there's a lot of jealousy out there, I think. And people come here, um, Spears, most of it, as you said, is local. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's less than 3% of license holders are actual non-residents. Uh, but this year we sold licenses to people from 71 of 72 counties in Wisconsin. Still got to work on that last one. <laughs> um, and then we also sold licenses to people from 31 different states within the U.S. and one Canadian province. So... Although most of it is local, there is a lot of interest um, throughout the U.S. for mm -hmm. this fishery. Mm -hmm. So you heard it here first. We are in the self-proclaimed sturgeon capital of the world talking to two sturgeon biologists. So um, it's not going to get much better than this. So make sure you're listening up. So Aaron, uh, we'll go to you. Aaron O'Connell, fisheries technician. Um, can you describe what you do for the department? Yeah, so uh, I primarily work with sturgeon as well, um, whether it be with the sturgeon harvest uh, season or um, entering data, um, looking at data from some of the other uh, surveys we do with sturgeon. But also, I, I'm also um, pretty much involved in every fishery survey that we do here at Oshkosh, whether that be spring surveys for um, northern pike and uh, walleye and then some, some other things as well as uh, data analysis on those surveys as well. Great. So, so how did you get started with the department? So, like Ryan, I'm an avid outdoorsman. I really, uh, really enjoy everything to do with hunting and fishing, and that's that's kind of where I, I got my passion to, to go into this field. Um, a lot of applications were sent to many different offices, 
uh, was able to land a job in Shawano first working uh, with the trout crew and then about six months later uh, got this job here in Oshkosh when it opened so so trout versus sturgeon what do you like more sturgeon <laughs> good answer yeah. uh, I mean, I was going to say, too, it sounds like you're from a pretty, you know, deep-rooted sturgeon-spearing family, yep. so that's got to be just an awesome opportunity for you. Absolutely, to... yeah. I, I was on the ice before I could even walk, so mm-hmm. this was that's this awesome. is a dream. And that's that's really cool for me as a license holder, other people who buy licenses, too, to know that the money from those licenses is going towards management, and it's in very good hands. You've got two people with us today, um, grew up around this, they're very appreciative of it, they know how important the resource is, so... Uh, you should know that the program is in really good hands. And we're not taping this one today for video, but both of these guys are wearing bibs. <laughs> uh, they smell terrible. <laughs> so just briefly, we'll touch on it. When we when we got to the office to record this podcast, what we found you guys in another room. What were you guys doing in there? Uh, we were actually in our in our lab here at the service center, and we've been working... For a number of years, we, we collect stomachs for diet analysis, so we've got about 50 stomachs from fish that were harvested over opening weekend that we'll go through and um, basically see what the fish have been eating. Um, there's two two food, food items that we primarily see, lake fly larvae, uh, coronamid larvae, or we'll see, you know, gizzard shad. So we weren't doing that when you guys walked in. What we were actually doing is removing otoliths from probably, we got about 50 sturgeon heads that were donated from spears that... Uh, we're lucky enough to harvest a fish through the season, and this is actually part of Aaron's graduate research project, and it's, we're looking at it as a possible alternative for estimating age, um, so age, growth, mortality rates of lake sturgeon within our spear fishery. So there's a tremendous amount of research that goes into this time of the year, as yeah. I stated earlier. So you said, you know, fortunate <clears throat> enough to, to harvest a fish this weekend. What would you say the average, what percentage of spears are successful on the... Uh, not on the upriver lakes, but I would say on like Winnebago, Poig, and that kind of. Well, there are two different fisheries. Uh, there's Lake Winnebago. That's an unlimited fishery. Where we'll, um, what I mean by that is we don't limit the number of licenses we'll sell. So, we this last season we sold about twelve thousand five hundred licenses for the Lake Winnebago fishery, and then there's the upriver lakes fishery, which is a lottery fishery where people have to apply. Goes off a preference point system. This last year, if you had six or seven preference points. We likely we're going to draw a tag, um, but we limit that to 500 spears per year. Mm-hmm. Uh, the success rate on Lake Winnebago long-term average is around 10%. Um, last last season we had dirty water. Water clarity is the biggest predictor of spearing success because you have to be able to see the fish in your mm-hmm. hole. Um, and the further down you can see, the more of the water column mm-hmm. you're seeing. So last year's success rate was about 4.5%, but again that average is around 10. Um, there are certainly people that spearfish much more regular regularly than that and typically they're people that are just like anything else they're spending more time out on the ice not only during the season but they're also scouting in advance of the season some yeah. people have been out there for three four weeks already trying to figure out where the best water clarity is where there's you know red worms or these lake fly larvae for food or where there's shad so yeah. and just looking for fish as well um, on the upper river lakes the success rate typically is around 60 percent of license holders get a fish and that's why it's a it's a restricted access or a restricted effort to 500 spears. Mm-hmm. So it's a really unique opportunity for people to yeah. be able to get up there. Yeah, and that that's what's incredible to me is you know you get you you get these guys that are out there for you know a de- better part of a decade and they don't see a fish and then finally they get that one to swim under their hole and they connect on it and 
I mean, I can't imagine the rush that that is for for the guy behind the spear and then everyone else in the shanty. I mean, it's got to be just an unbelievable, you know, camaraderie affiliated with it. Yeah, the biology and the sport itself, I think, is is really unique and impressive in its own right. Makes for great storylines, but it really is the social aspects and the group camaraderie that makes spearing so so unique and so special, in my opinion. Um, we hear stories every year of people that have been going for 20, 30 years, and this is the first fish that yeah. A, they've seen, or B, they've gotten. And they've been buying a license for a long time, mm-hmm. and they still come back year after year, even though they weren't successful in the in the realm of getting a fish the year before, but it still could have been a successful season yeah. because of the memories they made with their someone in their family or their group got a fish or even just, you know, like I said, the other aspects mm-hmm. of the sport. Yeah. So before we get into more of the background, we've also got Nolan here. So we just heard from two guys who are absolute sturgeon experts. I think you would agree with that. So Nolan Nolan is like me. Um I grew up in the outdoors my whole life. I know very, very little about sturgeon and the resource we have here. So, Nolan, do you just want to touch a little bit? Because I think you're going to hopefully bring some good perspective to the podcast, too, asking some questions that that maybe we won't think of. So, 50 words or less, what do you know about sturgeon in Wisconsin? Well, I grew up on the lower Wisconsin Riverway uh, within biking distance. So, I could always, when I was little, I'd bike over the river. and I knew a little bit about Lake Sturgeon just because there is a population of Lake, Was- Lake Sturgeon in the lower Wisconsin Riverway, but obviously it's a very closed and regulated um, season for hook and line. Uh, but just here to kind of come in with the same perspective as a lot of the listeners probably, knowing very little. So I got a text from Sawyer yesterday, hey, you want to come up with us and check this out? And It's been on my bucket list forever. I've always been interested in this, and I just want to see what it's all about. That was over 50 words, but that's all right. <laughs> uh, Eric, do you just want to give a little background maybe for listeners of what you do at DNR and kind of why this is interesting to you? I think you have a story, too, that we'll probably get into later. Yeah. You were actually with a crew that was spearing, I think, last weekend. But Yep. Yeah, um, I'm, the, so I'm the social media um, uh, coordinator at DNR, and so manage our, all our social platforms. And obviously, you know, surgeon spearing is a big thing in this state. So, you know, we had a lot of outreach efforts on the front hand, kind of getting the word out about the season and whatnot. And, you know, the idea for this podcast came up. And, you know, for me, it was something that I was interested in, too, because like you said, Nolan, it's something that I've never done before. But, you know, we're always hearing about it. We're always seeing guys that are sending in pictures. And, you know, I think it's really cool to to see how all these people kind of engage around the sport is really neat because it is, like we touched on a few times, the camaraderie around it, it just seems to be second to none. So... So we touched on it a little bit, but uh, Ryan and Aaron, if, if you guys want to just give kind of an overview. So what exactly is the background and kind of a brief history of, of sturgeon in Wisconsin? Well, Lake Sturgeon and I are, have been around for more than 150 million years. So they've been around for a very long time period. Um, if you want to get into some of the background of management, before settlers came to the, to the Great Lakes region, they were very abundant throughout the Great Lakes. Uh, they're the largest, longest-lived species within the drainage. Um, and then as commercial fishing started to take off, it wasn't for lake sturgeon, it was for other more quote-unquote desirable species at the time. Um, but these large fish became a nuisance to people that were fishing. So they actually were removed and left for waste. You know, you hear, you've heard stories of people just putting them on piles and burning them, but there was not value on the fish. Um, with lake sturgeon... 
their biology. They're very long-lived, late-maturing fish, so they're sensitive to over-harvest, and that's why it's important to have the regulation program that we have in place. Um, so what started to happen is these fisheries, these populations started to significantly decline in most areas by more than 99% throughout the Great Lakes. Um, there's also habitat degradation that took place during this time, and you also have a caviar market because lake sturgeon, the, the role can be made into caviar, which can be worth large amounts of money. So it was all kind of a, you know, to the detriment of the species, but with, with management in Wisconsin, um, we've been able to restore a lot of our populations. And on the Winnebago system, we never really got to the point that it was, that sturgeon were gone or that they couldn't replenish themselves. They just needed active management, which started in the 1900s. Um, 1932 was the first modern sturgeon spearing season on the Winnebago system, and we'd have an annual season ever since. The regulations, of course, have morphed. You know, back in those days, we've I've heard many people talk about stories of, you know, using horses to bring out shanties onto the lake. You know, technology's advanced. More people are interested in the sport now, and, and along with that comes more needed regulation. Um, I'd say right now we have one of the most strictly regulated and closely regulated um, recreational harvest of any fish or wildlife animal around. I mean, it's mandatory registration for all spears. They have to have a license. They can only fish from 7 a.m. to 1 p.m. each day. Um, we determine the sex and maturity of every fish that's harvested, and we have harvest caps where we can literally close down the season in one day if we need to. Mm -hmm. And those harvest caps are tied to how many fish we estimate to be out there in the population. So it's really data-driven as a management program. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned 150 million years, so I guess what makes sturgeon as a species unique? Is there something that's allowed them to be more resilient to, to kind of change? You mentioned they're sensitive to habitat, but surely there's a reason that they've been around for as long as they have. Is there, So what makes it a unique species, or why should we be so proud of the fishery that we have here? I think we should be proud of what we have on the Winnebago system, but also throughout our other populations in Wisconsin. I mean, we've got Lake Sturgeon. In most of the large river systems in the state, including the Wisconsin River that we commented on earlier, the Menominee River, the Chippewa, the Flambeau, uh, the St. Croix, many other river systems have lake sturgeon as well, and some of which provide recreational hook and line fishery um, with a 60-inch minimum length limit harvest. But what's unique for us is that we just never got to that point with most of our populations where they were driven to that low of a level where we had to start stocking fish to, re to restore them. And I talked about the late maturation, but the females don't reach maturity until they're 20 to 30 years old. Mm -hmm. So if we're stocking fish today to restore a population, we're talking about decades before those fish are going to reach maturity and then try to reproduce on their own. Whereas with walleye or another fish species like that, the females reach maturity in four or five years. Mm -hmm. You're talking about a much shorter generation time than you are with sturgeon. So um, throughout North America, there's a lot of restoration going on with this species, but for a lot of people, we're just there in that early stages yet where they have to protect the fish um, so that they can get to the point that we're at now. Or, and then hopefully down the road, they'll have these recreational harvest opportunities to tie in the sportsmen, sportswomen, but we're already there. Yeah. I mean, you, you talked about the 60-inch minimum for hook and line. To, to put that in perspective, how old is a fish that's about 60 inches long, roughly, if you had to say? Well, there's what's called sexual dimorphic growth with, with lake sturgeon, like a lot of other fish species. So the females reach larger lengths than the males. Um, so most of those larger fish are going to be females. We do have 70-plus inch males here on the Winnebago system, but that's really unique. Um, for a female to reach 60 inches, at least here, 
Um, we're probably, with the data we have now, which hopefully we're going to be getting more accurate down the road, but we're probably looking at a 30-plus-year-old female, and for the males, probably at least 40. So when you say late maturity for sturgeon, um, does that mean that's when they start reproducing? Yep, that's when they'll reproduce for the first time. They'll, they'll actually develop the eggs, and then from there, they don't even spawn every year after that. So the females, on the average, will only spawn every three to five years. Um, so whereas the males, we're seeing with movement data and technology that we have now that some males spawn in consecutive years, but it's probably on, you know, the normal fish is on a two-year spawning rotation for males. But if you're thinking about, you know, around 100-pound female lake sturgeon that has the, the black eggs or is going would spawn, um, that she's probably got around 30 pounds of eggs. So that's a huge energy demand that that fish needs to be able to, you know, that they're losing when they spawn, and then they have to be able to replenish that. So it's not a annual thing. Right. So you mentioned 30 pounds of eggs typically in a, in a fish like that. Do we have a feel for kind of what percent of those eggs reach the maturity level that we need them to get to, or is that kind of a tough mark to hit? <laughs> it's it's tough. I mean, it's very, very small. Um, you know, I, I struggle to say just how many it would be. I mean, there's been some modeling that was done by my predecessor as part of his Ph.D. dissertation, and with the with the data he had in the model, it was the average female um, will create around twelve yearling sturgeon every time she spawns. But then again, those fish have to live for another you know females another twenty to thirty years, and there's mortality in there as well. So it really is important to have um, close management and regulation of the harvest with these fish. Mm -hmm. You know, we we set our harvest caps to harvest to not exceed five percent annual harvest of the adult population. Mm -hmm. So does a, a younger sturgeon, do they have any natural predators in the ecosystem or are there other factors that affect mortality? Or I'd say once they get in through their first year of life, there's really not a lot for natural predators. I mean, especially because uh, like the sturgeon that are harvested during the spear fishery, we have a 36 inch minimum length limit. Most of the fish are probably at least over 50 inches. Um, you don't see the well-defined scoots. They're still there, but these smaller sturgeon, they've got really sharp scoots, five rows, one going across the back, and the two on the side and two on the belly. So it kind of keeps protects them a little bit from predation, but there are larger predators within the system that, that may have some level of predation, but there's pretty good survival after they get through that first year of life. So is that sturgeon lingo? So what's a scoot? The scoots are like some people around here call them hackles. Mm-hmm. I don't know what else folks have called them, but they're like little spines that, that come, um, that the fish have. Sturgeon don't have scales, so they, they have these rows of scoots, which are, like, they're calcium, but they're, they're very sharp and smaller fish, and then as the fish get larger, they, they, they become less noticeable. So I think that gives good perspective, good background for the species as a whole. So it's, this is something we touched on earlier, but is Wisconsin kind of a rarity in the amount, the amount of sturgeon, the quality of the fishery that we have here, both in the United States and in the world? Um, yes and no, but I'd, I'd say yes for now and probably for the last 20 years. Um, it's rare. I mean, there's only one other place that I'm aware of where you can spear lake sturgeon. That's on Black Lake in Michigan, and they typically have a harvest of five, maybe six fish per year. Um, so... Even in a down year like this year, our opening day harvest on Lake Winnebago was 83 fish. Mm -hmm. You know, so and that's down quite a bit from the average year. So 
this really is the place that people would come if they want a spear of sturgeon. Um, we also, there are other areas that have hook and line fisheries like we have in Wisconsin. Um, but again, I, I think right now we're kind of, we've been, I don't want to boast to say the gold standard, but we've had some really successful sturgeon management within the state. And I think some of the other areas are, are starting to catch up though with that with that opportunity. Mm -hmm. I know there are there are more by numbers fish within like the Rainy Lake uh, or Rainy River um, Lake of the Woods complex in uh, Minnesota and the UP or Minnesota and Canada, excuse me. But that is like I said, it's a much larger water body. But there's hook and line opportunity for for fish there as well. So you mentioned successful management has kind of allowed us to get to this point uh, with the help from obviously a lot of public and partners, but. So what would you guys say that the department and your role is in kind of um, contributing to that successful management? What, what is the department doing to kind of provide for this quality opportunity? I, well, I think the, the cab system that we set for the harvest uh, is, is really one of the biggest um, management things that, that we can set in place um, to make sure that that population doesn't get decimated. Yeah, I think... Um, management has been great, and I mean, Aaron and I can sit here and we can take responsibility and credit for that, but with how old these fish are and the regulations that have been put in place before us, I mean, we're really the benefactors of what past biologists, past managers have done. Um, we've been fortunate with the, with the lead biologist role with the sturgeon fishery here that dating back to the 1970s, it's, I'm only the third person. Mm -hmm. You know, before me it was, it was Ron Brook, and then before him was Dan Foles. So there's, and I'm close with both of those guys. I've talked to them, you know, at least probably weekly during the sturgeon spear fishery. So there's been a good, tran there's been a good um, transition of knowledge as well um, from those folks um, along to me. But we really benefit from, from good management in two forms. One is the... Um, you know, regulating the legal harvest during the spear fishery. So throughout the 60s, 70s, and 80s, you know, we had relatively poor water clarity on a consistent basis on the Winnebago system. So we had low harvest. Then um, through mostly, you know, at least we believe through, you know, improved land use practices and stuff like that, we started to see the water clear up in the 1990s. But with liberal, relatively liberal harvest regulations at that time, we started to see some very large harvests. There were over 3,000 fish harvested one year because we just didn't have those control mechanisms in place. You used to be able to spear uh, all day. You used to um, not be able to close the season because there wasn't a cap season, a cap system like we have now. Mm -hmm. So in the 90s, early 2000s, you know, there were a lot of regulations put into place to bring us to the to the regulated fishery that we have right now, which operates extremely effectively. So here on the Winnebago system, we also historically had, you know, concerns with the illegal harvest through poaching, particularly in the springtime. Um, so our sturgeon spawn on, on rocked outside river bends on the Wolf River, the Upper Fox River, and their major tributaries. And they literally spawn like right at your feet. Like they're spawning in one, two feet of water, so they're visible. They're large fish, so they were sensitive to people just taking them out during that time period. Um, with the creation of the Sturgeon Guard program, and I think in general a more conservation ethic from you know property owners, sturgeon spears, just the general public, um, you know that that illegal activity has been curtailed significantly. So we're protecting fish with the regulations we have in place for that legal harvest, but we're also protecting fish during that critical sensitive time period to harvest in the in the spring as well. 
Yeah, well, one thought that I kind of had as you were saying that is, you know, any anytime you have a harvested sport, whether it's deer, turkey, sturgeon, whatever it is, you know, you kind of get, we see that from a social media side all the time. People that kind of have that negative connotation towards, you know, killing an, an animal or a fish. And that, where you, you mentioned the sturgeon guard, that's really interesting to me. And I, I that would be one thing that if I had to explain, um, you know, the, the sport to, to someone who's never done it before, or perhaps is like against it, is that these are, the people that are out here spearing sturgeon are the same people that are trying to keep people away from, you know, harming them when they're spawning or anything like that. So I think there's that really interesting kind of relationship between the spears who are, at the end of the day, they're trying to harvest the sturgeon, but at the same time, they're trying to, you know, ensure the overall good of the species as a whole. So I think that's really interesting. Yeah, we've... You know, I talked about the regulations and the management, but a big part of that management is working with the stakeholders and working with the spears. And we're fortunate to have very passionate people around here about sturgeon preservation. So, as you said, the people that are buying licenses are supporting our management efforts. I mean, the, the your $20 for a resident sturgeon spearing license goes directly back to lake sturgeon management mm -hmm. on this system. So in the, the, directly, the spheres are paying for us to manage this fishery, protect these fish in the spring, do research projects, whatever else. They also are going, and they're members of conservation groups, particularly around here with Sturgeon, Sturgeon for Tomorrow, uh, which is a group that has five chapters around the Winnebago system. Uh, the group was created in 1977, and since that date, they've raised and donated more than a million dollars towards Sturgeon management activities, whether it's buying us equipment, um, paying for stocking efforts both on the Winnebago system and throughout Wisconsin, um, habitat projects, you know, throwing money at some of the cost sharing of rock for habitat enhancement projects, you name it related to sturgeon, they've, they've probably had their hands in that pie. Hmm. Um, so it's, it's really important to have the public engaged in the process. We also have a, a Winnebago system sturgeon advisory committee, which is comprised of uh, representatives from Sturgeon for Tomorrow and these other conservation clubs, fishing groups around the system that meets annually, and that group has been instrumental in passing many of the regulations that we have to date. Sturgeon for Tomorrow also has um, financially contributed and funded the the food aspect for the for the for the public during the guard program. So people aren't out here. The, one of the misconceptions is that you know it's a, it's almost like a bloodthirst of well I got to go out and I have to mm -hmm. I have to kill this fish you know and it's I. I really don't think that's it at all. I mean, it's right. It, people are, people enjoy the sport, and you know, with the success rate that we have, if it was just about killing an animal, people wouldn't do it. I mean, who's going to wait twenty years and keep coming back if they haven't gotten a fish? So it's that, it's that social aspect and the appreciation of the fish that keeps people coming back, and then they are the people that are going above and beyond and supporting us and supporting our program and supporting sturgeon. Yeah, and you mentioned, you know, the public support, and that was something that was, I guess, new and, you know, even a little surprising to me, you know, because you see some of the perceptions around the department, you know, and other activities, and, you know, I got I got to my buddy's house at 5 o'clock on opening morning, and we were talking about work and stuff, and I mentioned that I was shooting this podcast with you guys this week, and... They're a diehard Spearing family, and right away they, they knew your name. They're like, oh, Ryan's awesome. You know, they mentioned Ron Brook, and they talked about, you know, how, how great the, and they, they mentioned, you know, some of the, the downfalls that the Winnebago system has had over the years and how it's such an awesome fishery today. So I, that, that is interesting to me is all the public support 
around it, you know, to, to make this fishery what it is right now. I think that's a testament to the previous managers, though, that they've, you know, it's not a, it's not a DNR, we're leading the management activities, but we're co-managing it with the people that are enjoying it. Mm-hmm. You know, we're, we're, we have public meetings, we engage the public in, in just about everything that we do, so it's not, they feel like it's, they're involved, they're involved right. in the process, mm-hmm. and they have ownership in the process, and that's really important. Mm-hmm. So for our listeners at home, Ryan Koenig, sturgeon expert, um, also very humble, if you're not picking up on that. So Sturgeon Guard, you mentioned, um, what is it? Uh, the Sturgeon Guard program is an opportunity where the public, um, spears, non-spears alike, can, can come out. They can sign up for a shift to sit at a spawning site uh, where there's actively spawning sturgeon, and they basically just watch the fish to make sure that there, nobody comes and harasses them or that there's no illegal poaching that's taken place. Our law enforcement program um, runs the guard program. People can sign up online. You just go into the DNR website, type Sturgeon Guards. You can sign up for a shift, I believe, this year between April 15th and May 1st, and you'll get stationed out there. If the sturgeon aren't spawning, your shift will be canceled. You'll be notified in advance. Um, with the guard program, you typically get a hat, and you get three meals. So, you know, if it, In the past, it's been 12-hour shifts, so if you were 7 a.m. to 7 p.m., you showed up at camp, you got your assignment of where you were going to go, uh, you got a warm breakfast, you got a packed lunch, and then you could come back and you could get dinner before you went home. And if it was a night shift, you just started in reverse, you got dinner, and then ended with breakfast. But it's been a great opportunity for people to get out and give back to the resource. And you mentioned anglers and non-anglers alike, which I think is a really important part of that because sturgeon, sturgeon is unique too because it's such a charismatic, and when I say charismatic, like a popular species in Wisconsin, it's very iconic. Um, it's been here for a long time. People appreciate how important the resource is, but the support for the fishery is coming from anglers and non-anglers, consumptive, non-consumptive users alike, which I think is really unique with with game species in Wisconsin. We don't we don't typically see that across all species, but uh, can you talk a little bit about kind of the interest and support from uh, people who maybe have no interest in harvesting a sturgeon? I think the best example of that is in addition to the guard program, is just the number of people that come out to see these fish spawn. So there are, um, at, there's three known public access spawning sites on the Wolf River that fish use every year. That's the Sturgeon Trail in New London, Bamboo Bend in Chiocton, which is the most kind of well-known one, and then right below the Shawano Paper Mill Dam in sh- the city of Shawano. And at Bamboo Bend, if the weather's fairly decent and even if it falls during the week, I mean, in a day, they'll get, they're getting thousands of people to come through there to see the sturgeon spawn. And you literally can walk a shoreline that's, you know, probably, I don't know, three, 400 feet long at least, and there's fish spawning throughout the entire stretch. And, you know, it's, <laughs> there's nowhere else you're going to go and you're going to see something like this, at least the size of the fish and the number of fish that are there. And, all those people are not license holders. They're not sturgeon spirits. You have, you know, families that come out. They bring their kids out. The media does a great job around here of covering this. Um, but in a, with the spear fishery and the public viewing, it's also drives some of the local economies um, around the area as well. There's a lot of financial benefit to businesses with offering not only the harvest but also that opportunity for people to see fish spawn in the spring. Yeah, absolutely. And I think we're going to touch on that in a little bit because I think that's a really important part of it too. Uh, So to kind of move forward, so when people say hook and line, um, most people understand what that is. You're fishing with your 
kind of typical rod reel setup just like you would fish for other species but what I wanted hoping you guys can talk about is kind of what exactly does sturgeon spearing entail because for some people it might seem just kind of out of this world like when I heard just those two words sturgeon spearing it was kind of like I have no idea maybe what this even means so Aaron do you want to maybe talk about the background of maybe what it takes to get into it um, what actually goes on when you're in, in the shanties and and kind of give the overview of that sure um so yeah a lot of people do it differently but there's there's some key aspects that are pretty similar across the board and um having people come out with me and enjoying the sport one of the main things that they just takes them aback is actually cutting in um when when you talk about angling and ice fishing you know you're looking at a eight to ten inch you know hole whereas we're coming out with chainsaws and you know cutting uh whatever specifications of a hole inside 48 square feet that you can get many people change it up whichever way but yeah so cutting in is is really people's jaws drop when they see that a chainsaw literally going into the ice um, but uh, most people have their own shack um, there's all various different types of shanties and however people want to make them um, there's certain people on the lake now that that will actually uh, cut holes people in cut people in um, themselves and I think most people the going rate's like twenty bucks to cut a hole, but yeah, you need a you need a shanty. You get your hole cut, some kind of spear. There's many different styles of spears. Some people use the old traditional pitchfork style spears. Some people use like the new flying barb style spears. Um, some people have spears where the head disconnects, and some people have spears that's just a unified um, metal the whole way. So there's there's many different styles, but basically you get a spear. You get your hole cut, you get a shack, any kind of decoy within the regulations that you can use. People use all kinds of things. Um, a lot of like handcrafted wood decoys are used, but the, I've seen pretty much everything, you know, to like rubber shark kids toys, like bath toys. So, I mean, it's, it's incredible. <laughs> There's a lot of different perspectives. So what's the importance of the decoy then? Um, I think... In, in my experiences, you just get, you, you have the, some fishes are curious, basically, is what it comes down to. Um, I've heard people that say they've had decoys out for years and never have seen, you know, a sturgeon come up and investigate, but um, I've speared three fish that have decoyed in, um, and it's it's more of a, you know, what the heck is this in the water, you know, checking it out, so... And you probably knew this question was going to come up, but what's the weirdest thing that you've seen someone use? And I'm going to ask both of you this as a decoy. Hopefully not like right. someone's child or something. <laughs> no. <laughs> I think I think we might have seen the, the same similar thing. A, a toilet lid? Toilet seat lid? I've seen I've seen just about everything. Um, you know, jello molds, CDs, bowling balls. One of my buddies was using a conch shell over the weekend. You know, it's um, a lot of it is a standard, you know, wood carved fish, but I, I've seen a lot of different things, some of which probably shouldn't be on air. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> but um, I think to, to add on to what Aaron was saying about spearing and the equipment in general, I mean, it does take, you know, if you want to get into it hardcore, it does take quite a bit, and you can't just go to Fleet Farm and buy a lot of this stuff. Um, if you think you're going to really get into this, you know, you, you need a shack, that's of course, and you need a spear. Most of the equipment that people are using is 
you know, it's heirloom. It's been passed down through generations. It's It's been handmade by somebody that's a spear. Um, but there are opportunities, you know, that you can, you can buy some of this equipment. Um, there also are, if someone just wants to try it but doesn't want to have the commitment of building a shack or buying a saw or anything like that, there are people that rent shacks. I don't know what their daily rates are offhand, but they rent shacks that you can get in, you know, set up just like taking a guide out walleye fishing or anything else that you can pay somebody to use their equipment. And you don't need to have a saw. I mean, you can you can pay somebody twenty bucks typically or whatever it is to cut to cut a hole for you. So, it, it it can seem a little intimidating for somebody to try to get into it of what the financial commitment would be. But there are ways to um, test the waters to see if you like it um, before you really get into the sport. And when I grew up, my dad, you know, he never really was that big of a sturgeon spear, um, but he used to say this was like duck hunting out a chimney. You know, you're looking through the water, through a relatively small area of the lake, trying to see a fish that swims through. And then if it swims through, you have to be able to see it. Um, the success rate is low, um, but I think it's it's really worth looking into. I mean, a lot of people, uh, we sell around 13,000 licenses a year between the two fisheries combined. Um, but there's many more people that don't have licenses that take part in some aspect mm-hmm. of the sport, whether it's sitting with a family member or a friend or going around and socializing and just driving around on the lake or coming to one of our registration stations. You know, we see a lot of families there to learn more about sturgeon and more learn more about the spear fishery. Yep, and I think the culture part of it is important too because it may not be the easiest sport to get into right off the bat, but it's not like deer hunting where... It, You'd see a guy, uh, maybe in a tree stand or something, you're not going to walk up and kind of strike up a conversation and be like, hey, how's it going? Like, what's going on? This is kind of easier to get that one foot in the door and just kind of experience what it's all about. And it, it's really like a community event, too, from what I've seen. Yeah, if you ever want to talk to somebody that's probably the happiest guy in the world, go talk to somebody that's waiting in line with a sturgeon. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, it's... Absolutely. When my buddy speared that one this weekend, it was that that was interesting to me. Is all the guys you shoot a deer during deer season, the guy on the other side of the fence is jealous, and probably you know, especially if it's one he's got pictures of, he might not want to talk to you. But a guy spears a fish. Next thing you know, guys are pouring out of their shanties, congratulating you, patting you on the back, saying good job. That's it's a really cool atmosphere. So. It's a really unique event. It's fun. It's a good social event. You don't have to go here just to spear and just to harvest the fish. So at the peak of kind of spearing season on the Winnebago and the other systems, what? how many people do you think are on the ice? It's hard. It's hard to say. I mean, we do aerial shanty counts on opening day to just estimate how many shanties are out there to track that compared to past seasons. Um, this year on opening day, there are around 4,500 shanties on Lake Winnebago and around 500 on the Upper River Lakes. That number, I'm sure, has gone down considerably, at least on the Upper River Lakes, because you know, for coming into today on Monday, uh, 40% of the people had already tagged out. Mm-hmm. Um, but on Lake Winnebago, you know, stump, there is a push for people on opening weekend. Then some people pull their shanties off already. To know how many people were around or taking part in some sport of this opening weekend, I, I really wouldn't. Even, I'd struggle to put a number on it. A lot. I'd say it's at it's at least three, four times the number of license holders, though. Yeah, I mean, yeah. pretty conservatively mm-hmm. with that. Because so, I know a lot of people that don't buy a license that, you know, either go out on the lake or go to a registration station. Yep. So it sounds like a labor of love, too. You have people who, who have gone out many years <clears> and haven't haven't speared a fish. So what does a day in the shanty look like? What are, what are you doing in there? It is uh, hours of 
little activity, borderline boredom, <laughs> for seconds of pandemonium. I mean, it really is a, the, the biggest thing for to be successful in this sport is patience. Because I can speak from experience, you might, out of a six-hour spearing day, you might you might look down the hole for five hours and 58 minutes, and the two minutes you're not looking down the hole, the fish swam through. So, I think that's what makes it so unique, too. <laughs> the highs are high and the lows are kind of that, that steady low point, but the social aspect, I think, kind of takes care of some of that, but... I just think it's such a unique, like... Yeah, two of my good friends got their first fish over this weekend, and I kind of, they're both hunters, you know, they both shot nice bucks and stuff like that. They're both, you know, big big fishermen as well, and caught, you know, just about anything. And I asked them, I said, so how does this rate, because I'm personally not a hunter, so I don't have that relation there, I guess, to, to compare this to. But I asked them, how does this compare to, like, you know, shooting your first buck or something like that, and they said that they... They they thought it was more of a rush, because you you basically it's all reaction. Like you don't have time to think. You see that fish, you act quickly, and then and then you get the fish. And the rush is after you have it out of the hole because it all happens so fast. Whereas deer hunting, particularly bull hunting, I mean you see the deer from a distance, and you have to keep calm to get within range for it to get within range. And then you have to get your shot. But with sturgeon, I mean it all comes together so fast. And knowing that moment is so important, do people prep in the off season? Are they like shadow dancing in the back backyard with a broomstick or something? Like, are are there things they do in the off season to kind of to get ready? Or I think they just see a lot of fish in their dreams, <laughs> watch a lot of YouTube videos. Yep. <laughs> well, that can be the most useful tactic a lot of times for a lot of this stuff. So, how does how does the sturgeon, the harvest here for spearing, affect the fishery? Um, so on Winnebago. We we manage the harvest with the, with a cap system. So it's not a quota where we're targeting this many fish to be harvested per year. It's the cap system of this is the upper end of what we'll allow to be harvested. So we have annual estimates of how many adult males and how many adult females are in the population. Uh, we get that through a combination of the tagging data we, we have from spring uh, during the spawning assessments and then also we, with looking at every harvested fish to see if they're tagged or not. And then what we do is we take the five-year average of those estimates to account for the variability that's within, you know, the formula itself. Um, we take the five-year average and then we use 5% of that five-year mean as a guide um, for setting the safe harvest cap. So we, in a year where we have clear water and it's successful and we end up closing the fishery down early, we still only want to harvest at the most 5% of the adult population. And typically it's we have caps for juvenile females, adult females, and males. Typically, it's the adult female cap that, that triggers early. And the system is set up that we have um, system-wide harvest caps, which is what the population as a whole can sustain. And then there's a, per a percentage of that, each cap that's divvied up to the upper river lakes and Lake Winnebago. So we can, we can close down either of those fisheries independently. The best usually happens where the upper river lakes closes earlier than Lake Winnebago. Um, but if we reach that system-wide cap, both fisheries could, in theory, close simultaneously. Once we hit at the end of the harvest of, of a day, all the stations calling their numbers to me, um, once we've hit 90 to 99.9% .9 of any of those caps, the fisheries closed at 1 p.m. the next day. So the spears have one more day to fish. If we hit 100% at the end of the day, it's closed. So it's really important for us to get those harvest numbers in early and then have the outreach avenues to get the word out to spearers that, hey, 
especially, you know, you have one more day or you're mm -hmm. done. So there's two main ways that, well, three, I guess, main ways that we do communicate that message. One, we do have gov delivery lists. So people that are interested in getting daily reports that I send out typically with how many fish were speared, what the biggest one was, where they were registered, any sort of human interest stories that come up through the season, I, I send out a daily um, email update. They can go on our DNR website, they can type in Sturgeon Spear and you'll see subscribe here for updates. Um, that list right now is around 12,000 people on it. So every time I hit send, that message is going 12,000 people. We also have a Sturgeon Spearing and Sturgeon Guard hotline. Um, the number is 920-303-5444 um, where people can get updates. I update that daily. And then we also have a tremendous amount of media coverage of the spearing season mm -hmm. as well, particularly during opening weekend. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think just about every channel is doing an interview with us on Saturday mm -hmm. and Sunday, and they get our reports and then use that in their stories. And for the people listening, we'll absolutely be sharing all those links. In particular, I think Sturgeon Guard is going to be really interesting to a lot of people, so we hope you check that out. Uh, so we talked about definitely a labor of love. Um, it's not easy. Um, you don't get into it in a day, but Eric, I want to get your perspective here because um, it's something you weren't super familiar with, but you went out last weekend um, with a guy whose family has been very involved with the sport for a long time. Can you just kind of talk about from an outsider looking in, kind of walking onto the ice, what you were thinking? Yeah, uh, for me, you know, I'm I'm a diehard deer hunter. That's like, I eat, sleep, breathe that, but when, you know, it came to this, we're going out onto the ice and right away in the morning, opening morning, we're seeing all these vehicles going past us, which I guess I kind of expected. And that, you know, I've also, I'm fairly unfamiliar with the Winnebago system. Don't spend a lot of time on it. But, you know, you're seeing all these guys going out, Christmas trees lining the, the roads and stuff on the lake and whatnot. And, uh, you know, people are getting set up. And, you know, it just, right away, you kind of can almost feel that energy in the air, you know, between guys that are, you know, kind of highly anticipating what's to come for that day. And, you know, I was, I, I started out sitting with my buddy's dad, who's been doing this his whole life. And he's, I believe he's in his 60s. And he's, you know, was talking about how he hadn't seen a, you know, hadn't actually laid eyes on a fish for the past six or seven years. And he still comes back every year just as excited as he was, you know, when he got his, speared his first fish. And so I was, you know, fully expecting not to, you know, see see a fish come through the ice that day. So I just got spoiled and lucky that, you know, my, my buddy ended up pulling one through the ice. But it was cool to kind of see that come full circle. And, you know, we took it to one of the registration stations. And, you know, these little bars that when you drive past... You know, during the summer or whatever, there's no one there. You come here at this time of year, and it's just packed wall to wall. There's people. There's a guy at the registration station with his cell phone. You know, has to take a, a picture with my buddy because his brother lives in Florida and has never seen anything like this. So I think it's just interesting to see, you know, how how there's people gathering at these places that ne aren't necessarily spears, but everyone just kind of shares that same hype about it, which is really neat. Absolutely. So I think we've covered a lot of really good stuff. It's going to be really interesting to people both who already spear and, and who don't spear. We hope it's going to cover that wide range. But one thing we like to close with is kind of, we talked about a lot today, but kind of one thing you tell someone who either wasn't familiar with sturgeon or uh, one thing that, that you're proud of that you're working on right now or that DNR is doing. Uh, so what's, Aaron, we'll start with you. What's one thing kind of you could say about sturgeon in Wisconsin? It's it's just an amazing it's an amazing species. Uh, we have, we're just really privileged here to have what we have. Um, and if I could say anything about sturgeon spearing, 
I would say it's a mental grind, absolute mental grind, but it's definitely worth it. Ryan, how about you? I think Aaron stole my answer with the with the we don't a lot of people don't realize how fortunate we are here with the resources we have, and I like I said I've been. I've talked to a large number of people uh, within the sturgeon management community, sturgeon research community, and, and they're kind of just in awe at what we have. And I think for me particularly growing up around the area, you know, I kind of always took that for granted until I started to see where people are with their sturgeon populations elsewhere. I mean, there's nine species of sturgeon within North America. Lake sturgeon is just one of them. And most of those species, and in some areas, lake sturgeon are either listed as threatened, endangered, or endangered. So it's... We're really fortunate with what we have. Um, it's been great management, you know, through decades here that we're we're seeing the benefits right now. I always tell people with sturgeon, these are the good old days. You know, you hear a lot of people talk about the good old days of sport fishing or deer hunting or whatever. We've all heard the stories, but these are the good old days for the sturgeon population here. We've got more fish than we've had since we started doing, you know, density estimates in the 50s. And we've got more big fish than we've probably had since the settlers came to the area. You know, we've had, we've had, this sport goes back to the 1930s. And we've got data going back to probably the 40s, 50s on, uh, for harvest data. And throughout that long time series, we've basically rewrit, re rewritten the record books for the heaviest fish on record since 2004. And most of it was from 2010 and 2014. So there's more big fish out there now than there's been for a very, very long time. Well said. Nolan, do you have any closing thoughts? I think I need to change in or swap in my poles for a spear. Yeah, that's, <laughs> I'm thinking about that too. Eric, did you have any anything to add? I guess from my perspective is if you've never given it a shot, just go out and sit with someone. I mean, I've never thought about sturgeon spearing once in my life prior to this this weekend and went out and sat with a buddy and saw everything come full circle and I guarantee you I know what I'll be doing next year on opening day of sturgeon season so yeah just to kind of reiterate this is why we do these podcasts the media coverage that Ryan gets is absolutely incredible he's been great to work with with them uh, we do the Facebook the Twitter stuff but 200 characters doesn't do this type of issue justice so when we can sit down with these guys I know they're busy and kind of get their perspective, um, give people a feel of, of what a day in the life looks like for them. Um, things like Sturgeon Guard, I think that's extremely an important message for us to share. And as podcasts get more popular, we're hoping you're going to be tuning in for more of these because we really like to give you guys kind of an inside look at what DNR staff are doing with partners and with you as the public to kind of improve your experience in the outdoors. Um, so thanks again for joining us today. You can find this podcast. We're going to share it on Facebook. Um, it's at dnr.wi.gov, keywords Wild Wisconsin, on our YouTube channel, which is WIDNR TV, on our iTunes and Podbean channels. Um, and we'll share links to all of that in the description as well, especially to things like Sturgeon Guard or the General Sturgeon page on our website. But um, overall, thanks for joining us. We hope you enjoyed it. Um, we hope to be back with with Ryan and Aaron next year for sturgeon spearing, hopefully before then if something else comes up, but uh, I'm definitely going to look into it. So thanks for joining us for this uh, segment of the Wild Wisconsin Off the Record podcast, and we'll talk to you soon.